1: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is BizBuzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in industry and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game changers, you're in the right place. Yes, you are. Welcome to Biz Buzz with Game Changers. Today's Buzz, getting social. Okay, Truth Time. It's the beginning of twenty fourteen. Sit back, take a look in the mirror, don't be shy. I have an important question for your company. When it comes to your social status, is your company a hider? or a seeker. You know what I'm talking about. I have a panel of 3 experts who have a lot to say on this topic. I'm going to introduce them briefly. I'm going to read the quote they sent me before the show and we're going to hear from them right away to see what they have to say. So first up on the panel, I'm going to welcome Michael Messison, a leader in Ernst & Young's social media and customer analytics practice. And Michael sent me the following. He says, "Social media can no longer be the purview of the summer intern or a small group in marketing, or outsourced to a PR agency. The social enterprise is a concept that leverages the full scale of any company to build trusted relationships that benefit each function, each division, each business unit, and geography. Welcome, Michael Messison. How are you today?
2: I'm great, Bonnie. Thank you for having
0: me. Thanks for joining me. So that was a pretty interesting quote there about the social enterprise. Why don't you give me a little more meat on the bones, and let's hear what you have to say about it.
2: Well, a lot of enterprises have treated social media as, as a small thing that they they've done on the side. It's been kind of a an activity that they feel is is uh, you know ancillary to their business is is less important than than it really needs to be. Companies that are are really firing in all cylinders and that are building trusted relationships with their customers, with their clients, and with their employees are engaging with those customers and employees and clients on all levels across all channels, and social has to be a critical component in that.
0: Okay. I'm just worried about the small group in marketing that thinks they own it. I know some keep the companies say, what, you have a social media group? Really? And what about those PR agencies that make their bread and butter off of that? Any quick comments on that, Michael?
2: Well, certainly you need to have PR agencies, and, and they need to be a part of that strategy. At the same time, it's the entire organization that needs to be a part of managing social media on an ongoing basis, getting information from your contact center, getting information from your stores and people who work in your stores back through the organization so you can innovate on new products so that you can create new experiences and so that you can build trusted relationships. PR agency, incredibly important to in making sure that you're getting the right message out. It's about getting the message out and then taking back what customers are saying about you and what employees are saying about you and internalizing it and using that across the organization.
0: Thank you, Michael. Good start to our topic today. Alan Lepofsky, VP and a Principal Analyst at Constellation Research and a frequent guest here on SAP Game Changers Radio. Alan told me the following, changing to social, in quotes, just for the sake of it, is a losing strategy. You need to have a plan that maps the right tools as solutions to specific problems. No one tool is going to solve everything. Very prophetic. Alan Lepofsky, welcome. How are you today? Hi,
3: Bonnie. I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be back with you in 2014.
0: Thank you. Ditto, ditto. So, talk to me. Changing to social for the sake of changing to social is a losing strategy. I think those are fighting words. Explain, (laughs) Alan Alan Lepofsky. Talk to me.
3: Uh, All the evangelists out there listening are going to hate me. They they hate when I say things like that. But essentially, what I mean is I I deal with a lot of customers, both the the software vendors and um, clients that are using the tools to run their business, that you know social is just one of today's big buzzwords that they know they have to move to. They're being told, you know we we need to implement social solutions. And you know what I mean by doing that for just the sake of doing it is losing ties into exactly what Michael was just talking about. You have to have a defined reason why you're doing this. On the external side, if that's customer customer support through your service organization, if it's better brand awareness through your marketing organization, that's great. If we're talking internally, is it around increasing project management? Is it helping the sales team connect better with the marketing team or helping the engineering team build products faster? There has to be a reason why you're doing this. Social isn't a thing of its own. Social is an enabler of all of the things that run your business. You know, just like in the past, having a phone or having email, social is a new channel, and it shouldn't be treated as a discrete object. It should be treated as a element of all of the things you do to run your business.
0: Thank you, Alan. Do you think there's the shiny penny approach going on when a company, let's, let's talk about a mid-sized company, mid in the SME range, says, OMG, we can't afford to avoid it any longer. We have to go social. Okay, good. Let's set up a committee and let's set up a, a chairperson and let's do this and let's hire this and let's, we've got to do, we've got to become social. And let's tell everybody we're social. Do you think it's the shiny new penny theory that, that regulates or leads people to do that in companies today, Alan?
3: Well, absolutely. And, you know, I like your, your term shiny penny buzzword compliant is another big, you know, terminology mm-hmm. we use. And the issue with doing that is that to any different person in, inside your organization, there's going to be a different buzzword that means something to them. If your company is trying to make sure that they are doing social because they're supposed to and moving to the cloud because they're supposed to and having a mobile mm-hmm. strategy because they're supposed to and yes. doing analytics because they're supposed to, you know, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of different things The different organizations inside your company are going to feel that are are the most important. One of the things politically inside organizations is these buzzwords help raise the elevate or elevate the awareness of some of these topics, which is what gets them funding. So that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons a lot of these things tend to be buzzword compliant. Is it it ends up being a you know a checklist on a financial spreadsheet somewhere. It's easy to justify return on you know a marketing campaign. It's far more difficult to say, we have happier employees because they're more trusted and engaged and, you know, open and transparent. So unfortunately, some of the elements of social are hard to show up on a balance sheet.
0: Very interesting. Thank you, Alan Lepofsky. And let's round out the panel with our third guest today, Anthony Leeper, a long time ago guest on SAP Radio. Thrilled to have you back. Anthony is Senior Vice President and Sales GM of Enterprise Social Software at SAP. Anthony sent me the following quote. By using the label Social Enterprise, he asks are we in danger of focusing on it in isolation of the bigger picture, thus potentially diminishing its value? Anthony adds, after all, social plus nothing. This is math, kids. Do the math. Social plus nothing equals zero. We can all be social. And interestingly, I found a great blog post Anthony published called Pay It Forward, Trump's ROI, where social is concerned. We can weave that into the conversation later. Anthony Leeper, welcome. How are you?
4: I'm very well, Bonnie, and it's great to be back from a uh – A nice, sunny United Kingdom today.
0: Good. Glad you're calling in. So talk to me. What about this math? Social plus nothing equals zero. What?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. In fact, this almost builds on uh, what Alan was just talking about. We've done a number of uh, research projects over the last couple of years around the value of social in a standalone environment, and you know, it's been proved that in those situations, it's less than successful, it's typically not adopted, uh, you know, and it, and it is very hard, as Alan said, to really establish an ROI from it. And I think that, you know, we're in danger, just like you wouldn't call a company the telephony enterprise when the phone came out. We're in danger of labeling social in isolation, rather than think about it as being an adjective and an enabler to typical business issues that we have today. And those business issues exist because companies have got bigger, they've got more diverse, they've got more geographically located. And each one of these things make it a lot harder for people to work together to focus on important priorities, to keep their finger on the pulse because they may not be in the office as issues are raised or as priorities are raised, or they may not be able to hear the customer when the customer starts to raise a query or a concern. And social connects us. It's an ability to Mm -hmm. connect us whether we're listening, whether we're analyzing, whether we're engaging, or whether we're just collaborating. So it's a connection, but it's a connection as part of a purpose, whether it's to build a better relationship with a customer to solve a problem quicker, to come up with new ideas, exactly the things that your other guests mentioned. And we need to think of it as part of day-to-day business priorities. And if we do that, it's easier to work out the value it delivers and measure the ultimate return on the investments made.
0: So, Anthony, you mentioned a lot of reasons, a lot of raison d'etre, if you'll allow me to wax a little French in here. Sure. Uh, question is, who decides the priority of the reasons for going social, for being social? Who sets that priority? Is it at the top? Is it at mid-management? Is it that little group that uh, who talked about that? Michael Massison from E&Y talked about it's no longer the purview of the summer intern or a small group in marketing. So who sets that priority and says this is what we're going to drive toward? Anthony?
4: It really depends on the type of companies today. There are those companies that are understanding that uh, if we raise this as part of an end-to-end capability to leverage our entire business, then it typically becomes a discussion centered out of the COO office or the CIO office, and it's not in isolation. At the same time, of course, if it's something like marketing, wanting c- to connect closer to the messaging and feedback and an overall temperature of its customer base then it may be an initiative that's come out of the cmo office maybe they're looking at listening to uh you know conversations going on out in the the world of social blogging and networking sites such that they can drive uh, a recognition of customer value opportunity etc so it really depends it's not a simple answer and that's because Social in itself is not a single product. It is made Mm -hmm. up of a number of products. And therefore, there are many different line of business leaders who may decide. Those companies who want to become more end-to-end pervasive in how they connect through the capabilities of social, then it typically becomes initiatives driven from the top down.
0: Thank you very much. You know what? I'm going to kick in, before we go to break here, I'm going to kick in our What's in Your Cup segment, because we are a part of the SAP Coffee Break with Game Changers radio series. And I'm going to ask you all, since we did very brief introductions, I'm going to go back first, Michael, then Alan and Anthony, where are you calling from? We already know Anthony. And what's in your cup today? And then we're going to go to break and come back with a massive roundtable round. I'm hoping we have a good, healthy debate, because I think that's where this is headed today. So Michael Messisson, Ernst & Young, where are you calling from today, Michael.
2: So I'm calling from Denver, Colorado. Uh, What's in my cup? I'd like to share a story that I was an intern in Indonesia when I was in college. The best cup of coffee I ever had was one that was bought for me by a group of students I did not know on my 21st birthday. Uh, And it was a terrible cup (laughs) of coffee. The conversation, (laughs) the openness of the people in Indonesia and the experience that they shared with me during that interaction was uh, life-changing and and was really the best cup of coffee I've ever had.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. That's lovely. Alan Lepofsky, what's in your cup today, or what do you wish you were drinking? Alan, you know the drill.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm calling in from Toronto, Ontario, Canada today on a not terribly cold winter day, thankfully, after the last couple weeks that we've had. Oh, yeah. uh, I am currently drinking a um, a hot uh, what do I want to call it? like a mint hot chocolate uh, what do they oh. call it the pepper, peppermint I couldn't couldn't get that out peppermint hot chocolate so that is what's warming my insides at the moment.
0: I'm glad it sounds like there's a little caffeine in there. And Anthony Leaper calling from the UK. What time of day is it right now, Anthony? What's the weather if you could see outside? And what are you drinking?
4: So right now it's uh, around about quarter past five in the evening. Uh, It is dark outside now, uh, but we've had a reasonably clear cold day with a sort of yeah, you know, crystal clear blue sky, so it's been uh, very nice, seen the sun a bit. And what am I drinking? Well, you know, I'm in, in detox time, so I'm drinking oh. pints of water on a fairly regular basis, uh, trying to get over the excesses of the Christmas period. Uh, so my target is between four and six liters a day, which in your speak is over a gallon of water a day. So if the line suddenly goes quiet, you know where I'm running <laughs>
0: I, I knew that was coming. BioBreak, BioBreak will allow you. Just don't go on mute, but go far away. That's fine, Anthony. Thank you. You know what? Uh, this has been a very interesting, we've changed the format a little, but I like it. I think this is going to stick. I'm speaking today to Michael Massison from Ernst & Young, Alan Lepofsky at Constellation Research, Anthony Leeper at SAP, and I am Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be for the next 45 minutes. Today's topic here on BizBuzz with Game Changers is the rise of the social enterprise. What's up? We'll be right back after a brief break. Don't even think of touching that app, that mouse, that dial, however you're listening. Shout out to Tom Flanagan, who's tweeting, and Alan Lepofsky. He can talk and tweet at the same time. We'll be right back. Brad out.
1: The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Business models have a short shelf life. Today's reality, given shifting technologies, real-time information, and collaboration across time zones, competitive advantage increasingly resides in speed to market and in the cloud. The bottom line? Technology cycles will continue to shorten, making business planning cycles less realistic and strategies less tenable. You need to become a savvy innovator who looks ahead to the next technology trend and its applications to tomorrow's business and industry strategy. BizBuzz with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to BizBuzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to BizBuzz with Game Changers.
0: Buzz. Here we are. Our topic today is rise of the social enterprise. What's up? And this applies to companies, I believe, of every shape and size, every industry around the world, every geography, every footprint, every level of experience, every level of investment. You got to be social today. So we're going to talk about it more with my special guests. I'm speaking with Michael Massison at Ernst & Young, Alan Lepofsky at Constellation Research, and Anthony Leeper at SAP. Michael Massison, tag, you're up. Let's start off our roundtable segment right off the bat here, I want to start out with a topic you sent me before the show that's very interesting. You say, trust is a scarce resource and must be earned by companies. I think that's a very loaded statement. It has a lot to do with behavior and visibility today and, of course, the added dimension of social. Everybody has that ability to quickly tweet or put something on Facebook. It's just so transparent. You can't run. You can't hide. So talk to me. What does trust mean to you from your perspective or of your research? of what you do at Ernst & Young. Michael, start us off.
2: That's that's an important point, that social media has really uh, opened up the curtain and allowed us to see what's going on within a company, and it's uh, allowed that to happen in a lot faster way. Uh, Trust is a a resource that's really scarce. Companies work really hard to earn it. And I was just speaking with a a group of folks here in Denver today uh, about Amazon and why that company has to be able to build uh, and become such a, an important company in the world today. And I think it's primarily because of trust. Yes, they have a lot of great technology. Yes, they have some innovative business models. Those are all important things. It's really the trust that has made uh, Amazon successful. When I order something, I know that I'm going to get it, and I don't am going to get it when they say I'm going to get it. I trust that that's mm-hmm. going to happen. The same thing for if I have a problem with the product I buy from them. I trust that if I have a problem... I can shoot them a quick email, and I'm going to have a very easy return back. So trust is what has helped to build that organization to what it is today. Social has made that more transparent so that if I have a problem with a product that I bought from a company like Amazon, they fail to live up to the expectation that I have, I can very quickly send out a tweet or post on their Facebook page that that company has failed me, that they are failing to live up to that expectation that they set. That goes around the world very quickly, and that trust Mm -hmm. can very quickly get eroded.
0: Okay, let's talk, Alan Lepofsky, let's get you in on trust. Let's make that our buzzword for right now. What what are your thoughts? What is Constellation Research observing in terms of this issue of trust and social?
3: Sure. Well, in my opinion, you know, I certainly agree with everything Michael was saying. Trust, reputation, far, far harder to gain it, far easier to lose it. The perspective that I cover on it is more at the individual basis and personal identity. And what social has done, while it, it does things for brands as well, like we were just talking about an Amazon or a Zappos or something like that, for organizations internally when they're thinking about their employees, what social tools has done is allowed individuals to raise their, uh, their awareness, their expertise, um, you know, their skill sets inside the organization. And that's, that's scary for some. You know, in the mm-hmm. email-centric world, a lot of information was sort of kept individual in silos. I would send a note to, you know, these four or five discrete people. And with social technologies, you know, everyone can see what you're saying and see what you're talking about. And so, you know, trust being, you know, the essence of our answer is correct. Is this something I should use in basing a decision is one thing, but, it, you know, building your reputation internally is, is very different now than it used to be. Uh, cause now everybody can kind of see your responses, can see the types of questions you're asking. Can see which topics you enjoy or are good at. Um, So, you know, tied into trust would be this concept of identity and reputation. Mm -hmm. Those would be be my thoughts around it.
0: Thank you. Anthony Leeper, chime in.
4: Sure. Let me me start first by coming back on Michael's point. Now I'll turn back on to Alan. So, first of all, you know, in the way Michael talks about it in the sort of Amazon world and stuff, what he's really talking about is how social is becoming a way of humanizing a lot of today's sort of faceless business world. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether you're going to Target or an equivalent store here in the UK, you know, you're very unlikely to meet the same salesperson on a repetitive basis. So even if you're there in presence, you don't have a sort of face to the business and a consistent interaction. And of course, if you go online, then there's no face at all. It's totally faceless and I'm just dealing Mm -hmm. with some sort of connected world that seems to, through some interaction, provide some sort of product. And when it goes wrong, that's when you want this level of trust and connectivity and a way to interact that gets some response. So you almost create a relationship with the social element of the environment rather than necessarily the company themselves. You know, you trust Amazon recommendations because you've grown to work that the way they bring this information uh, is is typically unbiased. It gives you a comfort feeling. It makes a recommendation. You you take a choice. Now, we turn to, to what Alan said, which is around social internally and, and you know, pushing those boundaries of people who traditionally have been apprehensive in sharing. You know, if you think about it in the business world, it's always been sort of a, a, a very cutthroat environment. You know, you, you almost stamp on people to get to the top and knowledge is power and everything else. And social starts to change that whole thing because now my knowledge is is being requested. And when I give that knowledge, everybody sees it. So suddenly mm-hmm. my power You know, it could be perceived as being dissolved. The thing is that actually what social also does is to show you how valuable you are because of the knowledge you do partake in delivering, whether that's knowledge in Amazon about why a product is great or whether that's knowledge internally about how to solve a problem or how to do something better. And actually social then is something to be trusted when you realize that the value of what you can provide also is inherently recognized.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. I want to get into a little bit later in the roundtable, but not right now. I want to get into the idea of training people in your company on the issue of social etiquette. What is appropriate? What should or should not they be saying under, let's say, a a company-approved Twitter handle versus their own Facebook page versus a company Facebook page? We have different layers here. But just planting that seed, guys. But what I'd like to do now is take it in the direction of uh, something Alan Lepofsky told me before the show. Let me read this statement you sent me, Alan. I'd like you to kick off, and then we'll go around the table. You say, if you're going to enable openness and transparency that everyone has a voice, which we've been discussing here... You have to make sure there is someone listening and taking action. Why don't you set the context for that, please, Alan, and then I want Anthony and Michael to chime in, please.
3: Sure. This, this ties back to one of the original things Michael started the call off with, saying mm-hmm. how social has changed from sort of being a haphazard thing that maybe an intern was running. And, you know, I'll, I'll take that as the, the foundation of what I'm talking about. What I mean is, you know, organizations come to us and look for plans, advisory work, mapping of how they should be running their social media campaigns. And they have all these grand ideas of listening and setting up monitoring tools, but then often enough they don't have either the expertise or the process or the legal requirements or whatever it happens to be in place to then take action on that information. And, you know, the the saying is very simple. It's better to not listen at all than to listen and not take any action. And what I mean by that is Mm -hmm. if you are not going to interact with the people on your social media channels, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram, it's better to not be there in the first place. Everyone thinks, well, I just have to have a presence. Just having a presence is actually worse than, than showing up, letting people complain and or compliment or ask questions. We don't have to think of social as just complaints. Uh, but mm-hmm. any sort of interaction with your brand, if people are out there are trying to reach you and asking you questions and posting things and looking for confirmations of shipments and whatever, and you're not replying to them, it's better to not be there at all. That's sort of the, I agree. the, the, the background of that.
4: Go ahead, yeah, Anthony. I couldn't agree more strongly, Alan. Because uh, I remember you know, a couple of years ago, I used to talk about the fact it's almost like not answering a call in the call center for hours. You know, you know how annoyed a customer would get if you've set up this impression that you're there and you're going to respond, and at that point. You know, uh, when they ask a question or they're looking for information, there is no response. It's as bad as not answering the telephone. But interesting, the same problem occurs internally as well, because if you now have your employees internally getting used to this concept that there's some feed of knowledge that can back them up in the way they take action and the way they make decisions, then they're setting expectations to their customer, be it internal or external, that they're going to be able to deliver. And again, if that uh, social environment dries up after a few months and isn't there to deliver uh, based on the expectation, it's also a problem. So uh, you need to be thinking end to end. You need to be creating a culture that wants to deliver and wants to respond. And as you say, don't start if you don't intend to go all the way.
0: Very good point. Michael, do you want to chime in on this before I go in a different direction?
2: Yeah, some of our research has shown that about almost every Fortune 500 company today is listening to what's happening in social media. Only 5% of those companies actually respond to what customers are telling them and have a way to get that information from the the Twitter feed that they're listening to into the hands of people who can make changes to the company, into the hands of the people who are developing new products and services, into the hands of the people who can improve the customer experience, whether it's in the call center or if that's in uh, a store or if that's in their online store, in their digital store. So it's critically important that companies have a way to get the information that they're listening to, as Alan said, into the hands of the people who can actually make decisions. And that's how companies can continue to build trust through... Uh, social media listening, and then taking action to what the, their customers, their employees, and even their detractors are actually saying.
0: Thank you, Michael. I want to go back to something I asked uh, in the beginning of the show. I asked one of, one of you gentlemen about – I think I asked Anthony Leaper, actually, when we were opening the show, Anthony. I asked you who decides the prioritization of the social tools you use and the activities you use and who coordinates it, who decides what's important to the business of the business. So my question to all of you, and whoever wants to jump in, just say your name first and we'll we'll run with it. I want to know, is – Is it the habit of big companies today that are getting on this so-called social enterprise bandwagon, if I may use that term loosely, meaning it's something that's, wow, we have to do it, it's popular, let's do it. Is it something that's piecemeal, haphazard, organic? Or do most companies, you've observed from all of your points of view, from all of your your business perches, I'll call them, do you observe that companies are doing it in a measured detailed planned way is it more likely that a startup will have a plan for social versus a big company will say omg we're late to the party let's quickly start a social start a social organization let's put somebody at the head of it and let's get a bunch of people to do it so where is it being done the best that's my question anthony alan michael who would like to start that one
4: i'm happy to start i mean that's been one of the reasons why it's anthony here Uh, that's been one of the reasons why, you know, we've been trying to steer the evolution of our products and that to have a sort of common backbone because actually up until now, we're seeing most of the customers we interact with have approached this on a piecemeal way. And okay. maybe their, their social listening solution that they're using out there with their customer is not connected to their social platform internally that connects employees to employees, which is never connected to the business data. Um, and, and everything is just so fragmented, and it's happening in little pockets. Um, now, I think, in a way, it would be very wrong for us to say that's 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 not the right way to start because for a lot of companies, mm-hmm. to sort of go full um, approach at the very beginning is very tough and you need to test some pockets. You need to see how the culture of the company adapts and stuff. But mm-hmm. you need to start in little pockets as part of an, a, a wider plan. Where do you intend this to go? How do you expect your company to evolve through this social evolution and, and what are your plans on how you connect these pieces together? And we're beginning to talk to companies that have realized this and are pulling together their ideas and their visions on how they connect, and that creates a great opportunity. Um, but there are other companies that are still starting this journey today with isolated social solutions that are, are just falling off very quickly in their value.
0: That's what I wanted to know. Uh, Alan Lepofsky, what do you observe from Constellation's viewpoint?
4: One of your uh,
3: questions was around, you know, is it only large companies? Is this good for mm-hmm. small and medium companies to do social media? And I think one of the, the beauties of, of external and social is the low cost barrier to getting involved in it. You know, there's only so many companies that can run, you know, $10 million Super Bowl ads, but pretty much any company can, can get up and running on a Facebook page, a Twitter handle, whatever it happens to be. You know, looking at some of the smaller companies that I think have done a good job would be something, for example, the Dollar Shave Club, Which, you know, ships Mm -hmm. razor blades to people monthly and caused, you know, a lot of media and marketing for themselves by introducing really fun, innovative commercials on YouTube versus, you know, halftime commercials on the Super Bowl and then running ads, you know, on Facebook streams and things like that. So I think the accessibility of social is something that, that benefits small companies in ways that, you know, in the past, uh, they wouldn't have been able to compete with some of the lar- larger organizations that they were uh, they were going up against.
0: Alan, you just tweeted something I know is one of the points you sent me. I want to quote you here. I'm quoting Alan, quoting Alan. He says only 5% of the Fortune 500 have the internal process in place to get information from social media into the right hands. Amen. I you I want, want to be expand fair. on that? I was that? just
3: tweeting that from Michael, actually. I, 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 want, to be, I want to be fair. <laughs> oh,
0: Michael. That was I, one I believe, of yours. Michael
3: said that as a statistic yeah. in his – his well,
0: then let's that, get Michael to talk about that. Michael, talk to me. So,
2: so very uh, – I think this is changing a lot. I think as, as social media has become more mature, companies are beginning to pay more attention to it. And one of the things mm-hmm. that we noticed and that Anthony uh, mentioned was that uh, companies – it's very easy for companies to create social media properties. They can create new handles. They can create new Facebook pages. We have also noticed that a lot of large companies, because that barrier is so low and they lack a set of governance and rules of the road for how social media needs to be used within an organization, that they can have 1,200, 1,500, 2,000 social media handles and Facebook pages for a single company, and only 100 of those are being actively managed. So, you know, Anthony said that it's important to make sure that we have the right resources in place to be able to continuously manage that, it's critically important to get a handle on what social media activities are going on within an organization, be able to manage those internally and have that right governance structure in place to make sure that we're managing the risk and that we have the right resources dedicated to continue to manage that Facebook page or that that uh, Twitter handle.
0: So how do you manage it? How does a big company that's just brought this in and said, wow, we're going social, yada, yada, and they assign somebody to it. Somebody goes gung-ho off the deep edge, off the edge of the earth. They say, wow, look what I'm doing here. I'm talking to the customers. I'm responding to this and that. But they don't have the clout. They don't have the title. They don't have permission. Now Let's go to my question about etiquette. How do you train people to be good social enterprise I'll call it performers, players, participants, whatever you – ambassadors. Let's call it the word ambassadors. How do you train your people to do it the right way that meets your culture, that meets your business goals, that meets your company etiquette? Who wants to take that?
4: I'm happy to start it. It's Anthony again. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple of bits I just just want to put into that mix of that question, uh, Bonnie. Okay. It's to make it a little bit more complex. But I think it also depends at what level – you're going to do that social interaction. Mm -hmm. Um, Here at SAP, we have our salespeople today create collaboration groups directly with their customer on a deal-by-deal basis. And although we've created some background training on how to do this, how to control the assets you provide, the way to create the group, you know, all the security things around it. Um, As to how the conversation takes place, we pretty well leave that to the sales rep because they've got the relationship, right? They know how to interact with that customer and everything else. Obviously, as you go sort of wider in the scope of that social environment, then there's a need for more and more controls. Yes. Um, You know, once you're on a a sort of global social site, then brand is important. You know, the culture of the company and the way that gets represented is important. And of course. Uh, you know, any profanity or things, um, you know, oh, yeah. content that you don't want to have shared. You need all that content mediation control. So it depends on the size of social. And again, as, as part of my sort of, I keep saying to people, you, you shouldn't think of social in just one domain. Uh, social exists all around, and you will need different rules for each element. The first bit is get people comfortable with, you know, some of the core etiquette of how to respond, how to interact. You know, no idea is a bad idea. You know, encourage interaction. Um, and there are training elements available to help companies start to think about that.
0: Good. Thank you. Alan Lepofsky, I'm going to bring you into this on a comment you sent me before the show. You say, a person's digital proficiency is not tied, solely tied to their age. What do you mean by that? Let's segue from what Anthony was talking about through this, please.
3: Sure, this is, this is a very, very important topic that we're discussing a lot in 2014. And over the mm-hmm. last decade or so, there has been so much talk about generational effects on the workplace. You know, the difference between millennials and baby boomers and retirees and all of these things. And while I give credit to the people that talk about these things, and I certainly don't discount that yes, you know, if you grow up around a certain technology, you're going to, you know, be more comfortable with it than others. I disagree with that on the online world, you know, younger people have, you know, an edge or are more comfortable with it. I think a person's digital proficiency is tied to two factors. Their skill and expertise is one axis, and then their comfort level is another. You may be very good at something but not want to do it. You know, the hackers that know technology inside out but refuse to have a Facebook account. Uh, or you may have a very low skill level and be willing to jump in and do anything and sign up for every website known to man. Uh, You know, what we look at for this is that a person's digital proficiency is less tied to age and more tied to their surroundings, their environment, the people they work with, the organizations they're part of, more, you know, geographic and demographic information than just age information. And so we have people ranging from, you know, some of the cliche terms like digital natives, people that have grown up with it, to Mm -hmm. digital laggards, people that are watching but are staying out of the mix. And then to those that are digitally disconnected, those that are completely aware of what's going on but choose not to participate. And inside organizations, you have to have a good sense of feeling of what your employees are like. You know, you ask, what if somebody goes out there and is representing your company as a champion but doesn't know what they're doing or says the wrong thing? That's an exact example of digital proficiency. It may be somebody that's jumped in before they actually had the skills and expertise and training to do such a thing. So we work with organizations to help run through a series of, of questions and tests. I'll give you just a very simple example to not keep yeah. talking, but something like, what woke you up this morning? Was it a rooster, mm-hmm. an alarm clock, mm-hmm. or your iPad sitting on your pillow? You know, that, that, that distinguishes what type, you know, one of the, the keys of what a person is. You know, when you want to know what time it is, do you have a wristwatch or do you look at your cell phone? You know, and we go through a series of these. There's a hundred some odd questions that help figure out, you know, where somebody fits in the digital proficiency life cycle.
0: Very interesting. Michael Messison, Ian, why, what's your take on all of this as far (laughs) as uh, digital proficiency and who needs to get trained and the pockets of training and the etiquette? Talk to me.
2: Bonnie, I I spoke this morning for a group here in Denver about 125 IT and audit professionals. And when I've done this speech in the past, I've always asked, uh, who checked Twitter this morning when they got out of bed? Who checked Facebook when they got out of bed? And last year, my informal poll, a small handful of folks would raise their hands. This time, half of the audience had checked their Facebook page this morning, uh, and it was a wide range of ages. And uh, <clears throat> all of them had checked it since last night. So mm-hmm. I think there's been a big tide in terms of how people use it, and, and people of all generations have become much more, proficient in using these social channels, as Alan said. At the same time, uh, I think there's a difference in the way we, I use social media and use uh, digital channels and the way uh, my friend's 14-year-old son uses those channels. We were having a discussion when he was here over Christmas and I would read the article. The first thing he would do when he went to something was to look to see if there was a video to see if he could watch the video first instead. So while Mm -hmm. I think we can train people and there's a difference in digital technologies, there's a difference in the way that we all use them and what we go to look for first. And I think that does have some generational differences.
0: (laughs) Very interesting. Anybody else want to talk about generational differences before I bring in another topic?
4: Well, again, I think the other thing you've got as well is that, uh, you know, for for a lot of uh, people in the uh, senior levels of a company, it is not unusual for their Twitter handle to be managed by another team. And so it's very interesting, and sometimes you can work out whether this is actually, you know, very personal and uh, very much from the individual from which the Twitter handle is based or actually whether it's a a managed feed um, from a cultural office that is managing what is put on there and what is responded to and stuff.
3: And we mustn't lose sight of that. Yeah. Anthony
4: related to that, I always get a kick out of seeing people that
3: have the phrase, you know, my tweets do not represent, you know, necessarily represent the views of my company, blah, blah, blah. Yes. I just nothing yes. makes me laugh more than that. I'm like, that is not a legal standing. It is not, you know, I don't care if your company has requested that you put that in your signature line, it doesn't need to be there. You know, your image in social media is gonna be reflective and people are different than in, you know, their organizations. And there's so many different aspects of that, but we always have these long twitter threads about that. And Ended up finding some really, really good original signatures that people have put on that are very, very funny. And
0: and interesting Ellen, to the, there, go ahead, mm-hmm.
2: Ellen. Michael. I think there's a there. People can very quickly sniff out when a Twitter handle is managed by a PR agency yes. or managed by some internal communication team, and. One of the things that I think people find very interesting about using social media is the authenticity that you can achieve by having a good dialogue, a real dialogue through social channels, and that is the difference, and I think it's something that people value when they're looking at social media.
0: Michael, that's a great point. I just wanted to interject here for a second. This is Bonnie, obviously. I've been teaching a lot of technology 101 topics at my local adult education center here on Long Island, and I started teaching intro to social media, social networking, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Most of the people I deal with are not interested in LinkedIn. Twitter to them is something just fluffy and fluffy, and they they don't get it. Facebook, they get it. But in in my research to put together a, a PowerPoint deck, Alan, you could appreciate that for my class outline, I discovered that there was a way to tell if celebrities were doing their own tweets or they were, as Michael so well put it, managed by a PR agency. And I think the the consensus was that, see, Justin Uh, 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 Ashton Kutcher was doing his own tweets, but Britney Spears had an agency doing hers, and they were manufactured, and they were stale, and they weren't authentic, so don't pay attention to Britney's tweets. I got such a kick out of that, and I still have it in the deck. Trying to tell people if you're going to do it, do it authentically, as Michael said. Do it from your heart, and it should be you. But going back to what we're talking about in terms of the corporate ownership of the social media in terms of the etiquette and the reputation and the brand protection. There are many, many layers here. Now, I want to bring in one quick topic before we go to break because we're pushing pretty hard here. Uh, Alan Lepofsky, you introduced a term that is new to me. I'd like you to explain it to our listeners and have the panel quickly chime in. You say, personal analytics enable people to see the impact and reach of their contributions. And you go on to say, personal analytics is about enabling me to see how the posts, the files, the blogs I have created are doing within my organization. What's popular? What's not? Where should I spend more time? Where should I spend less time? And you say, Alan says, I call it small data. I like to say, don't forget the me in social media. Talk to me, Alan. Interesting concept.
3: Okay, sure. Yeah. So let's rephrase that last phrase. It's don't forget the me in social media. And what this revolves around is we have a lot of hype and industry buzzwords and talk around this term big data. And big data is all about the crunching huge amounts of information and interactions and people and profiles and being able to find patterns and recognize things. And while that's extremely valuable for things like, you know, Black Friday shopping or holiday gift shopping ideas and these things, what interests me more is what I call small data. And that's the subset of data that's specifically relevant to me. So when I make Mm -hmm. a tweet or an internal post or share a file on one of the cloud file sharing networks, I want to know which of my peers actually looked at that which of mm-hmm. the things, you know, the blog posts that I've written have been read the most and which have not, and get a sense back of where I should be spending my time and where I shouldn't. And over, you know, the the first introductory years, the training wheels sort of years of social media, you know, we were all just encouraged to get out there and share ideas and blog and tweet and internal whichever tool you use. But I think we're at the point of maturity now where people get the tools. They don't have to just get out there and practice using them. And I'd like to see the analytics from the vendors help us focus more on the topics, the areas, the times of day, the days of week, et cetera, that has been successful and allowed us to reach an audience versus wasting our time and say, I go off and spend six hours on a blog post that nobody really wants to read. So that's what I refer to as personal analytics.
0: I appreciate that. Anthony Leeper, I bet you have something to say on that. What what say yeah,
4: is true? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where the key is going. I mean, if mm-hmm. we think about not just social in isolation, but social as part of a business process, social as part of a interaction with a customer and all these little threads of social information – that's a huge goldmine of intelligence, and you will actually find a blog I wrote uh A little while ago, which was uh, talking around how social helps us maybe ask the question we've been too afraid to ask in the past. Um, You know, but but this whole idea of being able to start to track what are the threads of intelligence that we can get out of a a pattern of work that includes, you know, business data that includes uh, social information that includes input from people, such that we can make intelligent recommendations to yes, you should engage here because you can add value, because I've seen you add value in the past. B, you know, if I want to solve a problem, the system is saying to me, you should include Alan because he has expertise in this area, Mm -hmm. and he's got a track record of adding value. You know, systems are going to become far more intelligent in how they engage you in these conversational threads, because it's learning about the value. And yes, you can see a report of how valuable you are in that. But I think the real trick is the system saying to you, here's where you want to get involved or here's the way you want to do this because it's learning around the things we do that are adding the most value.
0: Wonderful. And Michael Messison, E.N.Y. why don't you close out this segment for me? I'll give you about a minute and a half here before we go to our final break. Go, Michael. Sure.
2: Sure. And from an individual perspective, I want to understand uh, what things I should be paying attention to and what I need to be looking at and what – blog posts will be interesting to me. So turning that on its head in terms of what I would want to post out, I also want to understand what types of things are going to be interesting to me based on what I've read, based on people that I know, based on people that I follow, and going deeper than simply a popularity contest where it's how many uh, tweets did that particular individual receive and and, or, or post, and therefore I need to be interested in that individual or that person's famous. What things would really pique my interest? I think that that would also be another way to kind of spin the the tool set on its head. And the same thing for a company. What types of things does that company need to be looking at? What are some of the early warning signs and early indicators uh, that there could be a problem um, with things that I'm doing or things that my company is doing? Using social as as that kind of early warning indicator to help me manage risks around uh, my products and services I think is uh, another key component that we have yet to see come out of our social media software vendors.
0: Thank you very much. I'm talking to Michael Messison at Ernst & Young, Alan Lepofsky at Constellation Research, Anthony Leeper at SAP. I'm still Bonnie D. Graham, and you're listening to Biz Buzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. We'll be right back with our final segment, which is called The Crystal Ball. I'm going to ask my three esteemed panelists, Michael, Alan, and Anthony, to look ahead over the break. Go and get to the garage, the shack, the back of the trunk of the car. I don't care where you keep it. Get the crystal ball out. Dust it off and tell me, me please if we had this conversation five years from today that would be January 14th 2019 really yes what would we be talking about in terms of the social enterprise would it have risen already would it be over and done would it be just a matter of doing business as usual we'll be right back don't even think of touching that dial that mouse that app Bread out
1: business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network business models have a short shelf life today's reality given shifting technologies real-time information and collaboration across time zones competitive advantage increasingly resides in speed to market and in the cloud The bottom line? Technology cycles will continue to shorten, making business planning cycles less realistic and strategies less tenable. You need to become a savvy innovator who looks ahead to the next technology trend and its applications to tomorrow's business and industry strategy. BizBuzz with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Biz Buzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Biz Buzz with Game Changers our crystal ball time, closing out
0: the show today. Business is in game-changing mode today. Social enterprise is part of that. I'm going to ask my three guests to gaze into the crystal ball and tell me, what will we be talking about five years from today if we did a show on the rise of the social enterprise? Let's start with Michael Messison from ENY. Talk to me, Michael. I can give you just about a minute and a half on the clock. Go.
2: Sure. Uh, So I think in five years' time, uh, we will be talking less and less about the social enterprise. I think it will simply become a part of the enterprise. It will be part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. I think it will be more ingrained in the way that we interact with our customers, the way we interact with our employees. I think that we will have a set of tools that allow us to very easily manage uh, our social environment uh, that uh you know we will be able to uh, use those tools to make sure that we are building trust with our customers and with our clients um, and with our employees, and that transparency, because of social media, will continue to increase uh, and that we will find out more and more about how companies operate, how they work, and, and what they're doing in a way that we have yet been able to do. And I think going back to I think it was Anthony's point that we would not be talking about a telephony organization, um, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Certainly, there were a lot of things that we were doing to make sure that we were integrating telephony into our organization, and we need to be doing the same thing for the social organization.
0: Thank you very much, Michael Massison from ENY. Let's turn to Alan Lepofsky at Constellation Research. Alan, Crystal Ball, what CSU?
3: Okay, so five years from now. One year from now is easier to predict, but let's let's take a, a jump at five years from now. Five years yeah. from now, we're going to have, based on things like, you know, I'll look at even an SAP HANA's in-memory computing or IBM, what they're doing with, you know, quote-unquote artificial intelligence in, in their new Watson computers. All of these things are going to combine to give us a lot more automation on the, fa- the tasks that we do every day, much more helpful information from our computers. If you look over the last decade or so, in all, honestly, nothing has really dramatically improved the way we get work done. We've had newer, better reach, more, you know, social technologies thrown at us, but there's just been more and more and more. We've had extra things added to our day. Instead of just checking our inboxes, we now have to check 87 different places for information. So in some ways, Mm -hmm. we've actually caused more fatigue in getting our jobs done than we have improving. And I think the next wave, whether it's via analytics or faster computers or pattern matching or, you know, any of these things we've talked about today, I think the tools are going to be geared towards actually refocusing on helping us get our jobs done. They're going to help us prioritize the things we should and shouldn't do. They're going to give us suggestions on the courses of action. They're going to look at our previous, you know, histories of the way we've responded to questions and provide us suggestions on what we should do moving forward. Now all of these things are going to, you know, hopefully combine to help us get our jobs done more efficiently. And that's, You know, what I'd like to see over the next five years happening.
0: Thank you, Alan. Quick question from me. In five years, when an employee gets hired by a big company that has a social infrastructure and believes in it, and they might be hired for a job that will put them in the social, on the social firing line, if you will, will their personal social networking, social media practices, best or otherwise, their personal history, become part of their resume organically, whether they like it or not, as far as their skills, their etiquette, their mouth? Talk to me quickly. 30 seconds.
3: And there's very little difference between work. You know, the term is work-life balance, and everybody talks about trying to find those. There's work-life blending. I, I often say we just have life. It's not work. It's not life. We have life, and aspects of that life are personal, and aspects of that life are professional. And it's not up to our organization to determine what the boundaries of those are. It's up to the person. You can decide to disconnect. You know, at night when you go home with your kids, you can turn off your phone. So, you know, will your personal profile be part of what you do at work? Uh, I, I still think there has to be boundaries there. But I think, you know, your personal reputation, A, helped you get the job so you shouldn't think that it shouldn't be part of what your organization is going to ho- hope to leverage from you. If somebody's hired for a social media position, then it's probably because of their, you know, their background.
0: Thank you, Alan. And let's turn to Anthony Leaper at SAP. Anthony, I'll give you a minute and a half. Talk to me. 2019, what do you see?
4: Yeah, I think it's going to be all about connections, right? It's around Mm -hmm. connecting people to people. It's around connecting organizations to people. It's around connecting the Internet of Things to enterprises. So we'll be talking about the connected enterprise, the people, the information, the applications, the business priorities, everything. And it'll be around really this pervasive blending of what we've called social today. But in fact, it's all just about listening analyzing, understanding information that's coming from other sources. It's around engaging in different ways. And through all of that stuff, being able to instinctively connect the right people to the right priorities based on either their propensity to want to be connected into that conversation or Mm -hmm. potentially their value, what they could contribute. And out of all of that, we're going to get some far richer sort of idea around, you know, what works, what doesn't, what to recommend, what not to recommend, meaning that our systems can become more instinctive, and those instincts that the systems have helping us make better decisions. So I think it's around being connected, being connected better, being able to respond faster, and in a way creating a successful enterprise for the future.
0: Thank you very much, Anthony. And now it's time for Bonnie's predictions. They're easy. I wrote them down. Tomorrow is Wednesday. Coffee break with Game Changers, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern, here where I am. Show number 117, if you're keeping track. We're going to do a part two tomorrow, Technology Donations, Enabling Social Change Around the World with NGOs and NPOs. Great panel. Nish Pengali from SAP is coming back with two special guests joining her on the panel. This Thursday, Startup Focus with Game Changers will be a rerun of a best of. We'll be repeating the Startup Nation Israel. Great show. You don't want to miss that one. And next Tuesday, right here on BizBuzz, With Game Changers, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, we'll be talking about, ooh, fakes, frauds, and scams. Are the bad guys getting smarter? You don't want to miss that one. Special thank yous to Michael Messisson at Ernst & Young, Alan Lepofsky, regards to everybody at Constellation Research, Anthony Leeper, great to have you back. Shout-outs to Susan Walker, Tom Flanagan, Brad, and the Business Channel team. And thank you again to Alan Lepofsky for talking and tweeting at the same time. You rock. And here's my call to action. Everybody listening, fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game-changer today. This is Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another live edition of biz Buzz with game changers presented by sap have a great day have a great week and i'll talk to you tomorrow on coffee break with game changers bye bye <music>
1: Thanks again for tuning in to BizBuzz with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.